Um, so me and Joel, we work for a charity called Kintsugi Hope, and uh, I'll just explain a little bit about about that a bit later. But um, we've got some books over there and some resources. Please, please take as many. Uh, well, don't actually pay for them. Don't take as many as you want. Um, but if you're really skint, just take them. I don't care. Um, but basically, um, we do this tour around the UK every June and every November, which is just incredible. So we have this chat show, and we have some music, and we we look at the themes of resilience, courage, and change. And uh, we're in Newark, which isn't too far from here, I don't think, and uh, literally going all over the place. And it's amazing, because about a third of the people that come are, are, are non-Christians. Um, I, I wanted to do an event which, hand on heart, I could invite my non-Christian friends to, because I always get like, the, the pastor always stands up and goes, you can bring non-Christians to this. And then you go to it and you're like, oh my goodness, like, this is terrible. <laughs> I am just so like there's so much lingo and jargon and and you're like, you know and and I think you notice it more don't you when you've got your sort of neighbour who's not a Christian sitting next to you um, so we literally like there's cut all that out and it's just a lovely night um, and uh, so there's some information about that there as well and uh, I've written f six books I think some of them are there um, honesty over silence is uh, I guess is looking at the whole thing around mental health and trying to correct some really poor theology that we have in the church around it some really muddled theology at times and uh, and that's there and bouncing forwards is the new book which i'm going to be talking about today and i wrote that two months before the pandemic started writing it two months before the pandemic started and it was on resilience because honesty over silence has this tagline it says it's okay not to be okay and after that book Oh my goodness, I had so many emails. I've never received so many emails from people just telling me they're very, very sad stories. These people have often been in church their whole life and just feeling lonely, feeling isolated. And I was like, I really do believe it's okay not to be okay. I really do. But I don't want people to be stuck not being okay. I want people to thrive. I want people to do well. And uh, so what we decided to do is look at resilience. Now, resilience by definition is thriving in the midst of adversity. So imagine how I felt when um, saying to my publisher, we're going to write a book on thriving in the midst of adversity. And then two months later, the pandemic hit. And I said to my wife, I can't write this now. And she was like, this is exactly the time you should be writing this. Um, and so we really went for it. And uh, yeah, it's caused quite a stir, which has been brilliant. Um, in a good way, hopefully. <laughs> uh, and then last but no means least, on the other side of these tour flyers, um, we have a national conference coming up. Um, who knows Terry Waite? Um, remember the story of Terry Waite? So Terry Waite um, is an amazing guy, and he's going to be at the conference with Graham Kendrick and all these other guys. Um, just the most amazing lineup of speakers. And, uh, and it's going to be in Chompton Cathedral, which is so beautiful. So we're really excited about that. Um, it's already filling up very quickly. So you're more than welcome to to join us. Um, it'll be really good. So I've been um, looking at this theme of coming out of COVID and coping with loss. And um, when I talk to people at the moment, they often say, I am so tired. And then they're like, oh, I don't know why I'm so tired. Uh, and I made this slide and put it up on my social media. Uh, why am I so tired? Maybe... The last two years, COVID, free lockdowns, not seeing my family, job uncertainty, government guidelines, war in Europe, 24-hour news cycle, cancelled holiday, the email you need to answer, rising gas prices, rising cost of living, lack of human contact, plus something else you can't put your finger on. And sometimes that weight is so hard. And, you know, people, uh, we long to be in control, don't we, often by human nature. And we've lost control over so much. And, uh, and it's been so, so difficult. There's a book called um, The Body Keeps Score that looks at trauma. And, and basically what it's saying is trauma is not stored in your head, it's stored in your body. And people are now coming out of that trauma, but it really needs to be processed well. And as churches, we need to try and help people process that trauma. So I've had lots of hospital operations in my life and very complicated scenarios, which I've written in some of the books. But I know if I go in hospital, sometimes my heart can race, but I know perfectly reason, it's logical, I just need to have an X-ray or blood test. Um, but trauma stored in your body. And, uh, and so I think like the body keeps score is really interesting. Our margins are really thin. It's a little bit like a smoke alarm, you know. It feels like it doesn't take much at the moment to trigger it, does it? I don't know what it is. When I fry bacon, my smoke alarm always goes off. And it's like everyone's emotionally charged. And it just takes that little thing suddenly, bang, something goes off. 
So Terry Waite, who I mentioned, who's speaking at our conference, I ironically got to know him during lockdown. Um, he was held hostage in Beirut for um, five years in 1987. And he'd actually been working to free hostages. He spent 1,460 days in solitary confinement. And then uh, he was released. And then he was out for a year, but with other people. Um, so he was there for about five years. The conditions for those four years were horrific. He was held in a cell, chained to the wall, sleeping on the floor, no natural light, no companionship, nothing to read, watch or listen in order to dull the agonizing passage of time. Um, he literally had a, a bag over his head, so he didn't see anyone hardly for four years. So I said to him, coming back to England, how did you cope? How long did it take to go through that? Because, I mean, that's lockdown on a totally different scale. And how long did it take? And he said something really interesting to me, and I've used it ever since. He said, um, if you're a deep sea diver and you go right to the bottom of the ocean and you come up too quickly, what happens? You get the bends, right? And he said, the only way that you can recover from this is to go gently and to go slowly. And I'm seeing a real mismatch in church sometimes where I can see the exhausted church leader getting up there, trying to get as many volunteers to do things as possible. And people sitting there going, I'm shattered. I don't want to do it. And their margins are thin as well. And people then take offense very, very quickly. So I found this is really fascinating after talking with Terry. So I started to think about this whole coming out of COVID, coping with loss. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to look at gentleness in the Bible? Go gently. What does that actually mean? And so I started to study it. And uh, I, I love the story of Elijah. You know, Elijah's there. He's run for his life. He comes to Bathsheba and Judah. He's left there. Um, Carmel's happened. And, and then these verses appear. It says this. Elijah was afraid for his life, ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba and Judah, he left his servant there. While he was there on a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a boom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he may die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and he laid down. And then the angel of the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey's been too much for you. And I thought that is a fascinating line. The journey's been too much for you. And the interesting thing about the story of Elijah, as he's recovering from this high moment, actually, you know, God could have come up to him and gone, Elijah, cheer up, mate. You know, Carmel was pretty impressive, wasn't it? Um, the Zerath, you know, Cherith Ravine, where I provided for you with the ravens and the bread um, for about a year. And then you went to Zenopath and the miracle happened with a little boy who died and he came back to life. It's incredible. You know, cheer up. Or we could have said... Actually, it's not as bad as the other people that are going through a hard time. You know, your pain is nothing like their pain. It's interesting, the amount of people that have said to me in the last couple of weeks, I can't moan about anything because of Ukraine, um, because of what they're going through. And I'm like, you know what? We can't play top trumps with pain. You minimising and suppressing your pain actually does them no favours. <laughs> because actually we need flourishing human beings. And, and it's interesting. And that God's reaction. And then... It comes, there's a powerful, uh, this is, there's a great and powerful wind that tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. God often speaks in a gentle whisper. Um, Proverbs 15 verse 1 says this, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15 verse 4 says, gentle words bring life. Then Jesus, the most courageous person that's ever lived, when he describes his character, the only place he describes his character in 89 chapters in the Bible, he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Um, Galatians says gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. It also says in Galatians 6, if someone falls away, restore them gently. I love this quote, says this, gentleness is not weakness just the opposite. Preserving a gentle spirit in a heartless world takes extraordinary courage, determination and resilience. Do not underestimate the power of gentleness because gentleness is strength wrapped in peace and there lies the power to change the world. I love that line. Um, gentleness is strength wrapped in peace. Gentleness, says Andy Moore, is an act of rebellion. It's completely countercultural. 
And if you look at how we should come out of this, this gentle spirit that I'm trying to talk about, there's four characteristics to it, is it means that you're down to earth. Um, there's humility. Um, it's about having a quiet ego. It's about quick to let things go. And it's orientated around others. It's orientated around kindness. So what I wanted to do today is I just wanted to look at three really simple things, um, which I think coming out of COVID would really help us in coping with loss. And the three things I want to look at is how do we, as we come out of COVID, as we cope with loss, how are we gentle, one, with ourselves, two, with others? And what is the gentleness of God really all about? And uh, because if I ask you these questions, who is your biggest critic? Let's have a really impromptu, unhyped um, response. Um, if your inner critic you think is yourself, maybe just put your hand up there. Um, okay, we've got a 100% response rate there. And it's interesting, isn't it? That actually you put yourself under more pressure than you would dream of putting anyone else under. Um, who sets the standards that you live by? And uh, you see, our inner critic is really loud. There's no place it won't go. It will tell you you've fallen short. It will tell you there is nothing off limits. Uh, its voice is accusing. It's aggressive. There's no grace. And your inner critic will always compare you with others and, uh, and always tell you that other people are much better than you. Now, it's really interesting. There's a psychologist called Martin Silman, and he, I write a lot about him in Bouncing Forwards because he spent decades studying what stops people recovering. And he came up with three Ps, which is very convenient for a preacher. Um, and the first one was personalization. And that is the belief that we are always at fault for everything. Now, that's really interesting because what happens is, is we take over responsibility. So a good example of this is parenting. So I know if my parents are do if my kids are doing well, um, it's all good. If my kids aren't doing well for any reason, it's 100% my fault. <laughs> well, actually, I can't control all their choices. Not everything happens to you because of you. And that's a really important lesson to learn, isn't it? Um, we blame ourselves. We make absolute statements. You know, I try and catch people at work when people go, I'm a complete idiot. I'm a failure. And I went, well, actually, that task might not worked out, but you're not a complete failure. Um, suddenly, it's all-encompassing, and we take everything personally. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the film Good Will Hunting. It's a fascinating film, and it stars these two characters here. So this is Robin Williams and a guy called Matt Damon, famous actors. It's an old film, but um, the Robin Williams character plays a psychiatrist, and Matt Damon's character, he's a maths genius, and... Um, but really troubled. And it comes to this pivotal moment in the film where um, Robin Williams' character has got a picture of, obviously, some abuse that's happened in the past. And he turns to Matt Damon's character and he says, um, it was a bruised back, I think, he says, see this? Do you know anything about this? And Matt Damon's character is like, yeah, know quite a lot about that, actually. You? He goes, yeah, I've experienced some of that as well. And he goes, see this? Not your fault. And he goes, yeah, I know. He goes, now look at me, son. It's not your fault. He's like, yeah, I know. He goes, look at me. It's not your fault. And then there's lots of swearing, so I'm not allowed to show it at a vineyard conference. <laughs> but um, the reality is, is we take total responsibility. And taking some responsibility is good. Taking total responsibility sometimes can be really damaging, particularly when we're coming out of COVID. Um, the second P talks about is pervasiveness, the belief that an event will affect every single area of our lives. And I always like to ask people, did COVID affect all our lives? Um, it affected a massive part of our lives, but you know what? I could still email. I could still go for a walk. Um, I could still hug my children in my house. There's loads of things I couldn't do, but it didn't take over my whole life. And, and sometimes we get all consumed by something and we think this is going to be it. This takes over our whole life. It's very rare that something takes over your whole life. And then third thing is permanence. The belief that the aftershocks of an event will last forever. That it's always going to be this way. We're never going to get through this. And I think this is really, really challenging. Um, we use this quote a lot during lockdown. Um, Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And it's interesting, people go, well, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, um, verse 48, be perfect as your father is perfect. People get really hung up on that verse. And actually, the Greek word in that passage is telos. It means moving towards completion 
and wholeness and maturity. Very different to what people have made it. And, uh, and so actually that makes complete sense. There, that's a journey towards wholeness and integrity. And actually the context of that verse is all about loving your enemies. It's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think as we're gentle with ourselves, we allow ourselves to be gentle with others, particularly around this theme of grief. Now, when I was writing Bouncing Forwards, I, um, I studied grief and I came across the stages of grief, which I'm sure you're all very aware of. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, famous Swiss psychologist, she said the stages of grief were these. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. Now, my problem was, is that I felt like when I've been grieving, that I go, I get quite angry <laughs> And anger is an emotional response to pain. Actually, there's no in the Bible says don't get angry. It says in Ecclesiastes, do not let anger become a resident, but you can let it be a visitor. Because anger tells you there's an injustice, there's something wrong. I'd get through to depression and then I'll slip back down to denial. And I'm like, when am I ever going to get to acceptance? This is rubbish. And uh, I am doing really badly at this stage. Of, when on earth am I going to reach this point of magically accepting all the grief that's happened in my life? And, uh, and then there's this beautiful lady called Tanya Marlowe. She's written loads of books. She's a theologian. And she said to me, Patchy, you do realise, don't you, that when um, Elizabeth Cuba Ross wrote the stages of grief, she wrote them for people who were dying, not for people who were left behind. I'm like, oh, my goodness, that makes so much more sense to me now. And, uh, and it's interesting. She said this, grief is messier. It comes in bursts. It has its own timetable. It doesn't fit with what we want to do. We want to plough our lines straight through grief, but it's more like surfing. You've just got to keep afloat. The hospice movement and others use this analogy, um, the ball in the box analogy. So if you can imagine your life is a box and each all of us have a pain button. And what happens is, is grief comes along and it hits the pain button all the time. Particularly if there's been a major bereavement, it is overwhelming all the time. And then over time, you don't go through some magic list and then suddenly get to acceptance. Grief's always there, but it just changes shape. And so what happens is it starts moving around the box, but it's still hitting the pain button quite regularly. And, and I found that fascinating because I think it explains a lot of how I coped with COVID because one day I'd be okay and the next day I'd be awful. And I'm like, how can I change literally within 24 hours, you know? And I think, bang, ball hits the pain button. It hurts. My wife uh, the other day was um, having a sad day and I was like, darling, what's wrong? And she was like, I miss my grandma. And I was like, but your grandma died 25 years ago. I thought you might have got over that by now. I was really sensitive and kind. And, and she sort of looked at me and she went, I know, but today I miss my grandma. What happened? Bang, ball hit the pain button. Our kids are growing up. She wants her, her, my, her, her nan there to see them grow up and become the children that we want them to be, you know. And so, and, and some people go, actually, that's not that helpful. Actually, grief doesn't change. In fact, the box gets bigger and, uh, and life gets bigger and stuff like that. And whatever analogy is helpful, I think the point is this, is that grief doesn't leave us, but actually life does go on. And we need to then be able to grieve properly. And we are grieving huge amount of loss at the moment. And, uh, and people need time to do that. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've been reading this book about loneliness this week. I was saying to Joel on the way up. And it's like they, they said that they did this experiment on mice. I don't know why poor old mice always get experimented on. And they were like, if they leave a, a mice in isolation for three months, then they add another mouse. The mouse that's been left in isolation for three months just gets angry and attacks it all the time. And she's saying that some of us are coming out of COVID and people are getting angry over nothing. Um, football fans are turning on themselves. They're turning on their own supporters. Some of the behaviour in football grounds this year has been atrocious, not against the other fans, but against each other. And it's really interesting, isn't it, how we deal with what we've been through. And uh, in the book... I talk about dealing with grief in two ways. I say there's two types of grief. One is a capital G, which stands for major bereavement. The second type of grief, which I call is a lowercase g, which is different losses that we've all faced. I sort of think, and you may not agree with me, major bereavement is on a different level. It's like, it, it just, it's all encompassing. It's so heartbreaking when someone we love dies. But there are other losses as well. 
the loss of holiday, the loss of family time, the loss of your job, the loss of things. Um, and the challenge is this, is we both, both need to be grieved exactly the same way. You need to name that emotion, you need to grieve it. Um, but what we do is we compare our lowercase g with the capital G, and so we don't grieve well. So my sister is an ITU nurse. She saw things during COVID no one should ever see. And every time COVID came up, I was like, I can't tell you about the grief that I'm feeling because your grief is worse than my grief because of what you're experiencing. Yours is a capital G, mine's a lowercase g. And it doesn't help anyone to live that way because we have to grieve. For some people, and this is a really important point, is I talk about in the book about ambiguous losses. An ambiguous loss is a loss of a date that has a point of clarification like death. So an ambiguous loss could be an undefined illness. I bet you if I went downstairs in the main session and people got undefined illnesses that they've never told anyone about. Um, an ambiguous loss is unexplained fertility, infertility. Ambiguous loss may be like a lot of my friends who are single and they've gone, I want kids. I don't even know if I can have them because I've never met that magical Christian guy who's meant to be there for me, apparently. And I don't know when to fight for that dream and when to let it go. And, um, and there's no point. You know, in fact, one of my friends said this, there's no landmarks, no defined moments of grief, which make it really, it makes it really hard to process. Some days are full of pain, it's overwhelming, and I find myself completely broken. Other days, I'm full of hope that it won't be long until my dream would be fulfilled. And of course, that we know that we find language for our grief in the Psalms. 40% of the Psalms are laments, aren't they? They're David crying out to God. And what I think about lament is lament's amazing because lament is actually going, God, I'm going to turn my face to you and I'm going to grapple with this. Whereas actually denying our pain, it means I'm going to turn my back to you and I'm going to go my own way. Lament, actually, most of the Psalms, you know, they, still, they start off by calling God Yahweh, Lord. You're still Lord. I don't get this and I'm quite angry, but you're still Lord. And I think that's amazing. Catherine O'Connor says this, the point of lamenting is to name the injustice, hurt and anger. Lament empowers sufferers to speak for themselves. Naming suffering before reclaims human dignity and the power that has been trampled and violated. Laments are the beginning of action, a rejection of passivity so they can revert despair. Go gently, please, people. Go gently with your emotions. Go gently with yourself. Go gently with others. We recently did a survey. Um, it was called What Makes a Mental Health Friendly Church? It's fascinating. And uh, three big things came out of it. And I haven't got time to go into it. But if you're interested, we are training churches. You've, I don't know if you've heard of mental health first aid. Um, so this is like a, a version for churches. Um, 91% of church leaders said they'd never received any training in mental health at all. And they were like, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and it was almost like, not a horrible way, it was like, they're trying their best, actually. Uh, and we're exhausted trying to do this. But no one taught us this at Bible college. No one gave us a theology of this. The second key thing was, is that churches don't name their position on mental health often. Um, what's the spiritual cause? What's the mental health cause? It's fuzzy. And so what happens when it's fuzzy, you don't deal with it. So if you've got anxiety or depression or any other mental health thing or you're self-harming, what happens is it's never talked about at the front because we don't really know what we're saying and we're not sure. So silence remains not helpful for most people that struggle with mental health. And then the third thing, which was beautiful, and this is out of the research that was done by academics, is the church is at its best when it's learned to be a gentle presence in people's lives. I love that a gentle presence in people's lives. And I think that's the key, because gentleness cultivates empathy and understanding. You know, I love the story of the road to Emmaus, because I love the fact that the day after Jesus' resurrection, if a marketing person had come up to him, they would have gone, Jesus, this would be really good for one of those feeding of the 5,000 gigs. That would be really, we'll get the message out really quickly that way, or a Sermon on the Mount would go down really well now. What did Jesus do the day after his resurrection? He walked with two heartbroken people that no one else really cared about. They didn't have no great influence. I find fascinating how church leaders and sometimes people, they just hang around people of influence. It's like flies sometimes, honestly. And I'm like, Jesus went to the heartbroken. 
people no one cared about and just spent the whole morning walking alongside. If that's not an example to us, I don't know what is. And at any point, he didn't jump in as they were sharing their pain and their grief and have you not heard and go, guys, listen, we don't need to have this conversation. I'm Jesus. Yay. He listened. And then he didn't even start telling I'm Jesus. He let them tell their story. Then he told them a bigger story. And he was saying how your story is wrapped up in this bigger story. And then he gets to Emmaus and then Jesus is going to go on. And they say to him, won't you stay for some food? And then so Jesus was going to leave them hanging. And actually he stays for the food. He breaks the bread and the brokenness reveals who Jesus is. Amazing. And I think what a beautiful, beautiful example of how we should be in gentleness, that we are not the rescuer. It's interesting. And again, another chapter in the book looks at the story of the Good Samaritan. And when we talk about the Good Samaritan in this country, I've noticed something. We are always the rescuer. <laughs> we acted it out. I was always the rescuer. And, uh, and you know, Samuel Wells, Samuel W. Wells, who runs an amazing church for the homeless, really, in St. Martin's in Trafalgar Square, he says, in the East, the rescuer is always Jesus. Jesus is always the rescuer, and we're the beggar at the side of the road needing redemption. And, and our job is not to be the rescuer. Our job is to bring people into the presence of Jesus. A completely different way. When we become the Messiah figure, we're in trouble. And so it's about going there. It's about going alongside the others. Um, we talk about inclusion. And when people talk about inclusion, they often talk about bringing people to the table. And my boss says, you know what? It's not about bringing people to the table. That's not inclusion. Inclusion is about inviting them into the kitchen. It's about actually come and prepare the meal with me. Let's buy the ingredients together. Let's be there together. And actually, that's what inclusion really is. Um, sometimes it can be quite patronising, actually. Just come and eat all the food that we've chosen for you. Just come and do all the, our customs, all the way that we do things. And it's very, very different. I want to show you this little video now. I actually think the content in this next three minutes is genius. And I think this is really where people are at in terms of needing coming out of COVID, coping with loss and what people need at the moment. Check this out. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> No. You want a sandwich? <laughs> um. Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. <laughs> I had a... Yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful. And we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. 
what makes something better is connection. Very clever, isn't it? Really, really clever. And, uh, and I think that's part of the key, is that coming alongside people. Um, Brené Brown talks about this thing called st um, story stewardship. And she said it's about honouring someone's story. And she said the challenge is, is, is that so often we have what she calls narrative takeover. Have you ever noticed that when you're telling someone's a story and then they take over by telling you their story? And halfway you're thinking, hang on a minute, I thought this story was about me. And uh, they've just taken over the whole thing. Or narrative tap out, it's too painful, can't deal with it. And we need to honour people's stories. Some uh, Professor Dane Siegel said people want to feel... Um, felt. Um, Maya Angelou said, uh, "It's not people will forget what you say, people will forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. It's a bit depressing for a speaker. Um, but actually, it's true. People want to feel safe. They want to know that you're genuine. Uh, something happens in our minds when we share our stories and we truly feel present to one another. So me and my wife, Diane, um, four years ago now, we um, decided that we wanted to start a charity called Kintsugi Hope. And Kintsugi is a Japanese word that means golden joinery. And so if you get a bowl and you break it, you tend to mend it with super glue and you hide the cracks, you pretend it's not broken. And what they do in Japan is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful for being broken. It certainly becomes more unique. And I'm a firm believer that beauty comes out of brokenness, that scars are not there to be ashamed of. Our scars make us who we are. Jesus in his resurrected body will have scars. And so we were like, so how can we help people? And I remember this was like three or four years ago. And so we studied movements. And, uh, and I was like, I, I ran quite a big charity. And I was like, God, I'll do anything for you apart from run another charity. Because I never want to fundraise ever again in my life. And, um, and I felt God say, don't think charity, think movement. I was like, what does that mean? So I studied things like parkrun. Has anyone ever done parkrun? And hundreds of thousands of people, mad people, across our country running in parks, different cultures, different ages, different abilities. Um, you belong, but you don't have to fit in. Rock choir, exactly the same thing. Choirs in school halls, community centres, churches. They hire Wembley Arena now. 15,000 people gather. You belong, but you don't have to fit in. Different cultures, different ages, different abilities. Um, Weight Watchers and Slimming World. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous. All these things that have started in the grassroots of community. And so what we did is we wrote a 12-week program. And uh, the syllabus is in one of these flyers here that you can get on the stand over there. And looking at things like anxiety and anger. And we wrote it all in learning styles because I realised that what might work well in Nottingham is not going to be the same as Essex and Scotland and Wales and Peckham where God lives. Um, you know, it's all going to be very, very different. And so we wrote it in learning styles. So it's not a set menu, it's a buffet. And then we we're like, let's train the church to run this in their community. And so before COVID, we got really excited. We started training churches and churches were really creative. They were like, this would be brilliant to run as a home group, but maybe let's invite people to our home group who we know would never go to Alpha, but they'd probably come to this. Um, so I did that. My home group went from seven to 17. Um, all my neighbours started coming. It was great. Um, and none of them would come to church, normally, not in a million years. And, but they, they loved this. And because it's 12 weeks, relationships grew like you wouldn't believe. And then some others would be like, oh, I think I could run this in a homeless hostel because these topics are just what the homeless guys want to grapple with. Um, school teachers were saying, I could run this in schools, prisons, universities. Um, someone talked about running it in a farmer's market because suicide rate amongst farmers is really high. We've got someone in Scotland who's just about to start running it in hairdressers. That is a brilliant idea. Hairdressers are half therapists, half hairdressers, right? Um, they listen to all your problems all the time. They're going to run a 12-week thing in the hairdressers in Scotland. It's fantastic. And we thought, this is brilliant. And so this map shows you where all the groups were starting to happen, and we were really chuffed. And then COVID hit, and we are like, we're doomed, because um, I take things personally, and I believe in pervasiveness, and I thought it was going to be permanent. And we're absolutely doomed. But then all my techie guys around me, they were like, I think we could put the training online. So people could do it anywhere around the UK now. And we can do all the applications online. And I literally understand nothing about technology. And, uh, and I was like, great, you know, we'll see how it gets on. And we did. 
and people started applying all over the UK. This is where the Kintsugi groups are now. Um, it's literally gone everywhere. And they are running in like so many locations. Um, they're running for women who are survivors of domestic violence. They're running for people in the school places, workplaces, I mean, business, in sports clubs, in pubs, in coffee shops. And I'm like, God, I so want to see a move of your spirit, but I've got to be really honest. If it's going to come in another conference in a massive big warehouse somewhere and God TV are going to come along and they're going to beam it around the world and we're going to call it revival, I think I might just quit. But you know what? If it could be in brothels and prisons and hospitals and GP surgeries and schools and universities and pubs, and if it's not run by the famous and the great, but maybe by the fragile and the humble and the courageous, I'm totally up for that. And it's almost like the stories coming back are incredible. People at week two, they said, I was having suicidal thoughts by week 12, the one and got a job. Um, people who've been struggling with shame and like never told their story to anyone, I'm starting to open up. I did my, I did my second Kintsugi group last night, in fact, because um, I always believe in modeling locally what you do nationally. And, and just some of the stories, I'm like, oh my goodness, there were people from my church. I'm like, I had no idea that you were going through this. How comes I've been in church doing this for like 20 years? You've been sitting next to me and we've never had this conversation. Um, and so it's been incredible to see what God is doing. And, uh, and so if you're interested in at all in doing anything with that, we would love to support you. We'd love to train you. We'd love to see if we can help you in any way. Joel, why don't you um, just come and tell people what you think in terms of coming out of COVID, coping with loss, particularly for the younger generation, how that's been going? Yeah, sure. So COVID's been really hard for our young people. We've spoken a lot recently, you put it in the news, how mental health in young people has risen and it's all going on. Mental health of young people was there before COVID. All COVID has done is put a spotlight on it. So coming out of COVID, what young people need more than anything, is a safe space. A lot in the world right now, it doesn't feel safe, does it? We've got wars going on, we've got COVID, we've got climate change. Young people are growing up in a world where they know it's not safe. So actually what we need to do as churches is create a safe space. And then in that safe space, what happens? Young people flourish. They, found, they find stuff out, they have hope, they find hope. So we're really trying to get churches and local Christian charities to start creating safe spaces in schools, universities, youth groups, youth centres, libraries, wherever, to allow young people to really process what's going on and find that hope again. That's brilliant. Thanks, Joel. Give Joel a little round of applause. That was great, wasn't it? A nice little... Um, and it was really interesting. I was reading yesterday that they reckon over the last 10 years, 800 youth clubs and libraries have been shut down. Um, so that safe space, that shared space is no longer there for so many people. And uh, so, um, yeah, we've got to be gentle with ourselves. We've got to be gentle with others. And we've got to allow God to speak to us about his gentleness as well. Um, I remember, again, researching for On the Stair of Silence, the last book, um, I did a chapter on the prodigal son and I was like, the prodigal son is, I don't know if there's some stories in the Bible that have been preached so many times. I, I tend to just have this automatic switch off thing in my head. Um, like I have looked at this, you know, it's a bit like the nativity every Christmas. You know, I've seen it through the eyes of the donkey, the shepherds, um, the innkeeper. I'm surely there's not another way of describing. But then when I looked at this story, I was like, oh my goodness, why didn't I know that? And when I, what the bit I didn't know was in the culture of where Jesus told that story, um, they used to have this thing called the Khazarah ceremony, which basically when a returning son who'd gone away and gone his own way and uh, came back to a village, is they used to have this Khazarah ceremony, which was known as the ceremony of shame. And what used to happen is the son used to come back and they used to get pots, the men used to get pots at the front of the village and they used to smash them. And by smashing them, they were like, my relationship with you is completely broken. Mum used to come to the front of the village and beg for mercy for the son. Dad, emotionally removed, stays in the back of the village, um, just embarrassed by the whole thing. And I'm like, that's amazing. So if you think about the story again, here in our story, the father's looking for the son. Why? Because he doesn't want his son to go through the ceremony of shame. And so he's looking. And the son would know that this is going to happen as well. And so the son is approaching the village and then the dad sees him and he starts to run. 
And and we again, we know in that culture to run, they wore tunics. So he'd lift up his tunic, which would reveal his knees. In that culture, that is shameful. The father's already had to sell loads of his land to give the son his inheritance. So there's already been shame and humiliation. And now the father's humiliating himself, shaming himself by running to meet the son. And I can imagine the son looking at the father going, Dad, you're, he's running. What's he doing? He's running. And then suddenly, you know, I love to sort of put myself in the story and try and listen in. I'd be like, what would be the first thing you'd say? Dad, you're running. It's like, I had to get to you, son, before the ceremony of shame kicks off. But Dad, I've completely fluffed everything. Why didn't you stop me? Because love isn't about control, son. I can't control you. Love is about freedom. But Dad, I'm broken. It's all right, son. It's okay not to be okay sometimes. You're back now. That's the main thing. And then the embrace, it's beautiful. And when we look at that story, we know that God shamed himself, humiliated himself in order that we wouldn't have to go through the ceremony of shame. And that's what the story was all about. And then we know the second son was so busy working for his father, he never had a relationship with his father. And his father goes out begging him to come. And we don't know how it ended. It left us hanging. It's one of those Hollywood films. You think, it can't be over now, surely. What happened? We don't know if the, if the elder son came in. He might not have come in. We don't know, but he was so, con so conscientious about pleasing his father. He never, ever had that relationship with his father. Sometimes we're so busy trying to please God that basically we miss out on a relationship with God. We are, some of us are working for an embrace rather than working from an embrace. It's completely different. And the key is this, for our communities and for you and for me, whether you think actually, I'm a bit like the younger son. I've looked for love in the wrong places. And I think we all do that a little bit. Or I'm the older son. I've been so busy working for God. I don't feel like I've missed out on a relationship with God. Whether you're the first son or the older son, guess what the goal is? It's always to be the father. It's always to love without exceptional return. To love without needing to be loved back. And that's what the father did. No agenda. And, uh, and I believe that that's where if we're going to come out of COVID, we've got to learn to love without agenda. We've got to love and say, you know what, this isn't just about being used by God. I've got people that really struggle with chronic illness and they said, you know, I hate that term, God use me. In any other world, that would be bad, right? To be used by anyone is a negative thing. If I said, I really want to use you, you'd be like, oh, thanks ever so much. Um, but she said, isn't it amazing if we stop saying God use me and say, God, why don't you, can't I partner with you? Can I be a co-worker with you? That actually that you call us to be in that relationship. Um, that's a totally different thing. Gentleness is strength. Gentleness with yourself, gentleness of others and gentleness of God. I'll finish with this little story and then I'll pray. Um, and then hopefully we'll have time to chat. Um, so a number of years ago now, I had a visit, the charity I was running by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I hope you caught those names as they dropped there and um, I was really excited because I have met prime ministers and royalty and all that and normally I meet these people about a week before the, an election you know when they're trying to get their photo taken and uh, but Desmond Tutu was coming and he wanted to meet some of the young people I was working with and he was coming at 10 o'clock in the morning now the thing about him coming at 10 o'clock in the morning with the young people I was working with at a time in my previous charity at 10 o'clock in the morning they're either in bed or in school. So I sent my youth workers, I went, get around the estate and tell them to get to our mobile bus, which is a mobile youth centre, because Desmond Tutu's coming. And so they went around the estate and they were going, you've got to get to the bus, Desmond Tutu's coming. And all our young people were like, ooh. And I was like, you're joking. And so I said to them, tell them, have they heard of Nelson Mandela? So like, have you heard of Nelson Mandela? And all the young people are like, yeah, of course I've heard of Nelson Mandela. I would say, say to them, he's the next best thing. <laughs> and he's got serious bling and you're going to love him. And uh, so like, he's got great bling, you're going to love him, he's great. And, uh, and he was coming with Mary Robinson, who is the former president of Ireland, but we didn't bother explaining who she was. <laughs> and uh, so in the end, what happened was all our young people were on our mobile bus, more out of respect for us than knowing who Desmond Tutu was. And so Desmond Tutu jumped out of his taxi. And you know sometimes how lovely old people can grab your hand and not let go. 
it was one of those moments. He grabbed my hand, he didn't let go, so we literally walked hand in hand through the estate, and I'm feeling like a complete idiot at this point, and all my young people on the bus are falling about laughing at this point, thinking this is so funny, Patrick looks so funny. And, uh, and we get there, and I'm a little bit like, oh, please just sock it to them, you know, tell them what real poverty's like. And Desmond Tutu went, I I'm here to listen. And I was like, listen. And, and so he did. And they talked about what's it like to see your mate killed? What's it like to see your dad beat up your mum and you feel powerless to do anything about it? Or mum gets another boyfriend who wants to, you, she wants you to call him dad, but he's not your dad. In fact, he's the third or fourth person that's tried to be your dad. And you don't particularly like him very much, but you love your mum. Um, what's it like to have a postcode where you feel like no one on that estate, 50% of the blokes don't work? And so what chance have you got? He listened as they talked about mums working multiple jobs and still not making ends meet. And then he said this, what you guys need to realise is that your past doesn't have to define your future. Afterwards, me and my new friend Desmond Tutu, we had to go and speak at an event together, which was highly intimidating for me because he sat behind me as I spoke on stage. I did my little talk and then he came up and he said these words, there were moments visiting XLP, you felt you're being tugged at your heartstrings. You were very close to tears, looking at these young people who've been going down a cul-de-sac, but then they realised they had an incredible potential they had been given when they were given the chance to blossom. Each one of these kids is a masterpiece. God doesn't create rubbish. <laughs> Each one of us is special to God. Your name is engraved on his hands. Some of us look like accidents. You might want to look around the room at this point and make your own conclusions. The most important thing you can do is to remind people that they're special to God. At one point, he grabbed this kid's hand. And there's always a kid in your youth group. And I don't know if this ever happened to you, but you're like, God, any other kid would be great apart from that one. And uh, he'd been smoking so much weed that morning. He was anxious. He was like fidgeting the whole time. And, uh, and he looked him in the eye and he went, i tell you what you are. You are a VSP, very special person. And this kid just looked at him and was like, and he was like, you have the potential to change the world. And it wasn't one of those stories that, you know, suddenly he became a Christian and it's like the main stage story and all that stuff. I mean, he did get his hair cut. He did stop smoking weed for a day. And he went around the estate, did when Tutu spoke to me. Um, but that was incredible. And then me and Desmond Tutu, we had a moment by ourselves and he said something to me, which, um, and I've told this story in front of thousands of people before in all sorts of different settings. And, and when I used to tell it, I used to lie. I used to say that Desmond Tutu said to me, XLP, which is the charity I used to run, makes God smile. He never said that. He never said that. You're thinking, you're a liar. I knew it. I should have gone to another seminar. I had an ice cream. Um, he said, Patrick, you make God smile. But it's always about the charity, right? I couldn't hack it. I couldn't hack it. And, and it's always stayed with me that moment. And it was an incredible time, you know. I mean, we went off and the kids still didn't know who Desmond Tutor was. In fact, one of them was like, oh, it's really nice of Trevor McDonald to come down and to hang out and stuff. And I was like, yeah. We've got to go gently. Go gently. Go gently with yourself. Go gently with yourself. Get that inner critic sorted out. Personalization, pervasiveness, permanence. It's not always your fault. Go gently with others. Understand what empathy is. You know, empathy is such a beautiful thing, but it's not feeling someone's pain for them. It's going, I'm going to get in touch with that feeling of when I felt that pain. Because if you start feeling their pain for them, do you know what you'll do? You'll burn out. Um, you can't stand in their shoes. I've got a friend whose mum just died. I said to her, I don't understand, she's not my mum. I know how it feels to lose someone, but I'm not going to stand in your shoes, but I'm going to come alongside you and grieve with you. It's very different. It's a really different skill set, which I think is actually important to mention. And then actually being knowing that God is there, that you make God smile. I'm going to read a poem to finish, but hopefully that little talk has been helpful to someone. Um, please come and chat to me and Joel. And if you're interested in the Kintsugi groups, 
Um, we send out a monthly podcast about mental and emotional health, which is just brilliant. I can say that because I don't do it. And um, interviewing some of the most amazing people on faith and mental health. And if you're interested in it, it's free. It's nothing. No, there's no catch. But if you're interested in that, um, there's this little card you can fill in and we'll make sure you get that every month. Um, and then all the stuff that's there goes back into running the charity. So it's not a big money-making thing. Um, yeah, but we'd love to chat to you, so please, please hang around. The other thing is, I just want to finish it by reading this poem. It's by a beautiful lady called Jane Smith. Jane, when she found out I was um, starting a charity called Kintsugi Hope, Discovering Treasure and Life Scars, she said to me, I've written you a poem. Um, Jane has a really rare form of blood cancer, and she has just one of those beautiful human beings that she's been through so much. And, and she was like... This is all the stuff that I've discovered in my journey of having cancer. And I actually think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. It goes through the alphabet a little bit, but let me read it to you and then I'll pray. It says this. Acceptance in the anguish. Beauty in the bruises. Comfort in the conflict. Courage in the crisis. Determination in the distress. Diamonds in the dust. Discovery in the darkness. Faith in the fear. Fortitude in the frustration. Grace in the grief, healing in the horror, hope in the hurt, insight in the injury, inspiration in the illness, love in the loneliness, mercy in the misunderstanding, opportunity in the ordeal, peace in the panic, purpose in the pain, refuge in the regrets, rest in the restrictions, shelter in the shock, strength in the shadows, treasure in the trials, trust in the trauma, victory in the vulnerability and wisdom in the weakness. Father God, thank you for everyone gathered here this afternoon. Thank you, Lord, that um, as we come out of COVID um, and we're still in a pandemic, um, there's still a lot of stuff, a lot of people hurting, a lot of stuff to process, a lot of trauma to work through. I pray, God, that, that people here would know to go gently, to go gently with their emotions, to go gently with themselves, to realise that gentleness is strength. It is strength that we would go gently with others, God. So often we've come with so many hidden agendas that people have seen through everything. I pray that there will be more safe and supportive spaces, Lord, not just with Kintsugi, but just the church all over every community in this country would be a safe space for someone to grieve, a safe space to lament, a safe space to deal with that ball bouncing around the box and smashing into that pain button. Lord, whether it's a capital G or a lowercase g, that, that we would grieve, Lord, in the right way, in a safe place where we can know that we're not judged. And God, that we would know the gentleness of God. We would know that running Father, the Father that's never static, the Father that doesn't wait for us to come to him, but runs towards us. I pray that we would know his love and his grace and your kindness in all the situations that we're facing in our lives. God, I pray, Lord, that you would actually start a movement of people that want to love without an agenda and know they're loved by you. And so uh, a work from an embrace instead of always searching for that embrace um, from someone who simply can't give it. God, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for your presence here with us today. Amen. Amen.